0: And my name is Mike Joseph. I, as always, appreciate your support of this podcast, so please make sure that you mash that follow or subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen. Also, feel free to leave a comment and rating on the podcast if the platform supports it. You can follow me on Instagram and it's Mike Joseph. And if you have an idea for a show or you'd like to be on the show yourself, drop me a line at detoxpod at gmail.com. Uh, we are living in crazy times right now, so I just want to send a message of, of peace and hope that you're all as safe as possible and as healthy as possible. Um, We have our first international guest on the podcast this time, and I'm happy to welcome Louis Perlman to the show. Although he currently lives in New York City, Louis comes to us via our neighbors to the north, Canada. Louis is a playwright, with his latest project being Joey and Ron, a 60s bubblegum musical. Louis is also an improv artist, a comedian, and a podcast host. His current podcast gig is a show called Kick the Jukebox, which is based on music, and if you love music like I do, I hope you check it out. It's really great he writes plays he does improv he hosts podcasts as you can see louis is a creative multitasker and his multitasking is something that gets discussed during his interview along with a lot of other things including his upbringing as a canadian jewish person a canadian queer jewish person uh bullying during his childhood why he doesn't feel very in touch with stereotypical gay culture his introduction to and immersion in the arts and where he sees his career going in the future uh, louis is a super talented guy uh, he's got a lot uh, up his sleeve and I hope you enjoy this interview check it out
1: hello my name is Louie Perlman I am a writer and a performer and an improviser I recently uh, mounted a musical that I've been working on and off on for six and a half years called Joey and Ron that felt like a big accomplishment
0: congratulations I was the
1: book writer and the lyricist for that and I collaborated with a wonderful friend Joel Escher on that show That's and that was great year. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, I host a few podcasts, uh, which are great. One is called Kick the Jukebox. It's a music discussion podcast. The other one is called Exohexo Riverdale and is a Riverdale fandom podcast. (laughs) Uh, I am a writer for toughpigs.com, which is a Muppet fan site. I've written some stuff over the years. I've written actually a lot for rebeatmag.com, which is a retro music arts and culture website. And I do a lot of teaching artist work as well. And that's sort of everything that I do that I feel contributes to my creative practice and my, my life and my, my self-identity. <laughs>
0: you do many, many, many things.
1: Yeah, but I don't do them all at the same time. Sure. You know, that, like, actually, <laughs> I, literally everything's on break right now. Like, everything. Um, I'm looking for a way to bring back Kick the Jukebox in a way that feels good for me and my podcast partner and feels good for distribution and that kind of stuff. Uh, With XOXO Riverdale, we made a decision to watch through the entire season and then do a recap uh, season. So that's going to be coming up in the spring once once season four is done of that show. And then most importantly, I'm looking for ways to map my musical in bigger and better ways now that we've had a successful run of it. And that'll involve securing funding and working with producers and that sort of stuff. So actually right now, I'm somewhat inactive creatively. I've done a little bit of stuff here and there. But really, I'm kind of on a bit of a break hiatus, and I feel like those sorts of times for a creative person is important uh, to take a break every once in a while and reevaluate and make sure you're happy, make sure you're doing the right stuff. Uh, Although I am beginning to itch to get out and be a little more creative again, because it is important to me, and it is something that I feel is part of what makes me happy in the world.
0: Now, for the sake of context, how long has it been that you've been on sort of a, a hiatus Uh, well, Joey
1: and Ron, the musical, ended at the end of November, and then, uh, really, I just feel I've been a little less prolific since then. You know, I've done a few improv shows here and there, but, um... I haven't done anything. Uh, this feels sort of big or substantial since then. I did a released a DJ mix.
0: Oh shit! Sometimes. I didn't know. I
1: don't think I knew that. Oh yeah. So uh, you know, I DJ from time to time. It's more of a hobby than anything. Do you have a really DJ name? Yeah, DJ Hullabaloo. All right. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I used to DJ '60s music nights with my friend Allison, who's the founder of Rebeat Magazine. Uh, that were called Where the Action Is, and that's sort of how I got into DJing. Um, so I ended up DJing a really, really, I feel, sort of deep, gay disco disco set, which I've been doing for a while out in the world for different things, like d- did it for a friend's birthday party, did it at Camp John Waters this year, but uh, I felt like it needed to be sort of committed to some sort of like recorded... I needed to record it so that other people could hear it, because I think it's really good. So you can check that out, too. I have a Mixcloud.
0: Oh, awesome. Yeah. And is it just DJ Hullabaloo on Mixcloud? I
1: think on Mixcloud, it might be just my username for everything, which is also where you can find me on social media and stuff, which is louis4711. But yeah, it's, uh, and that mix was called uh, I Want to Dance With You, named after a discotheque and a sex Alette song. That's, Indeed.
0: Is the fact that you have so many plates spinning in the air, do you think that's a New York thing? I don't know. Uh, I have a lot of friends that are like,
1: and I'm really kind of envious of them, that are a little more like, this is my thing. This is what I do. This is what I enjoy to do. And they can really describe themselves very succinctly and clearly. Whereas for me, I feel like kind of the way my brain works is I like to sort of be doing a little bit of everything at once. Uh, And I think that I'm a little like creatively ADD that way.
0: (laughs) But I also think that it's
1: like a really good thing for me. Yeah, I mean, I sort of do like doing a lot of things at once, but I feel like sometimes it can be to my detriment. Devoting time just to focus on one project will make that project much better. Sure. You know, I took a hiatus from everything else to be working wholeheartedly on Joey and Ron in advance of the run happening and then during the run. And it helped me focus on it in a way that I think was really helpful. And it made it feel a little more like a job as opposed to a hobby. Sure. You know, and uh, I definitely think that I can rest on my laurels sometimes when it comes to a lot of the other creative stuff. If I, I don't feel like I, like I quite have the focus that maybe I need to push certain things forward. And it's something that I'm still working on.
0: Did, how did you get introduced to the arts? Like where did your creativity come from? Is that something that you were exposed to as a kid? That's a great question. I had very
1: encouraging parents And certainly, my parents are engaged in the arts and maybe more so than other families are. They've always been really into film. They've certainly have their own taste in music that is like quite good and like quite well thought out. Like, they're not the parents growing up that only had like the Top Gun soundtrack (laughs) in their car. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, uh, which, which is definitely, whereas a lot of our parents, and that's not even me trying to be too like dismissive of it. It's just that like my parents certainly always had a great love of music. They are currently really into dance. There's a dance company in Calgary where I grew up that they love, that they are big supporters of, which is really cool. Um, I grew up in a house that, where there was sort of a lot of art and culture around. Uh, But, however, they themselves are not artists. They're appreciators. Yeah, they're appreciators more. And I definitely tackle a lot of what I do from that angle as well. Like, I consider myself an enthusiast first and foremost. Like, sort of all of my work, no matter what it is, basically the thesis line is, Oh my God! I think this is so cool, and I want you to think it's cool too. Isn't which this is cool? Great. Yeah, 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 definitely. So I, I mean, I definitely tackle stuff from like a fan perspective, you know. And that's definitely if you see my musical, which is a '60s bubblegum rock musical. Very much, it you're supposed to feel for the characters, and I think that I we do a good job of that. It's a very accessible show, but. At its core, it's very much a celebration of, like, a very specific era of music and culture. Like, very, very specific for a very specific audience. Uh, But it it lets you in instead of isolating you, and I'm, like, really proud of
0: that. It's a specific era of culture which you were not alive for.
1: That's true. Which I find
0: really interesting. There's a small amount of people, I know you included, who were born in the 70s or 80s, but have a, a huge appreciation, more so than I would think normal, than a huge appreciation for music that was made before they were born. Yes. Perhaps even a bigger appreciation for music made before they were born than for music that was made while they were alive. Sure. Where'd where'd that come from? I have some really,
1: really early sense memories of listening to music in my house when I was maybe about two or three. I think that music specifically, there's an intimacy to it. It's sort of, there's something about it being right in your ears that I feel there's less of like a barrier as opposed to visual art, at least for the way that I absorb. For me, some of my earliest memories are listening to music and sort of the earliest songs that I can remember is, and I and this is something I talk about all the time, but I really do remember this is my parents' Bought the first Tom Tom Club record. The Tom Tom Club are a Talking Heads offshoot. And my parents didn't really know who Talking Heads were. Oh, okay. They knew who Tom Tom Club was because at the time we were living with a friend of ours, uh, uh, our friend Annie Van Dusen, who worked for my parents. And she lived in the basement. And she was into the Tom Tom Club. And she was about 10 years younger than my parents. So she was, you know, of course, listening to music that was current at the time. Right. And I uh, vaguely or uh, very kind of vividly remember having that album on in our house and is basically sort of a new wave art rock funk record. Yes. But it is somewhat like intentionally bright and simplistic. So I think that it's actually quite good for kids. It's Even a good record
0: for kids. The artwork. I remember when yes. the Town Sound Club record came out, I was intrigued by it because mm-hmm. the cover art is a cartoon. That's right. I mean, not just the... Yeah, the cover art, front and back cover.
1: Yes, that's right. The cover art was done by a artist named named James Rizzi, who was a contemporary of Keith Haring and Basquiat it and those sorts of Brent artists. It does look very Definitely, yeah. And he... He, you know, he called himself uh, an urban primitive, which, you know, the Tom Tom Club have described themselves as as well, I think because of Rizzy describing himself as that. And they had a really close relationship with, with Rizzy as an artist. And it is, it's very bright and very childlike and also very busy, the cover. So There's I a lot of, happening. Yeah, so I have a lot of memories of um, listening to that record and looking at the album cover while listening to it and the the music being so representative of the cover and vice versa like i think it's really such a good visual and and uh audio pairing and you know the two members of tom tom club the two founding members chris franz and tina weymouth were visual art students so it makes a lot of sense you know that the aesthetic would be sort of a whole you know well thought out aesthetic so I have early memories of that, and then also the Muppets and Sesame Street, which always really had very good music, very sophisticated for oh, kids, yeah. Oh, yeah. more so than you would expect. Um, that sort of tr- I think just triggered something that sort of instilled me that like all that stuff was felt like kind of like comfort food for me. And then there was a period as a kid where. Music didn't play a big part, certainly, for a while, you know, where I definitely don't remember really thinking or caring about music a lot. Um, uh, I did a lot of reading during that time. Uh, I certainly watched a lot of movies and watched a lot of TV and cartoons and was playing a lot of Nintendo. (laughs) But, But then sort of 14, 15... Rediscovering my parents' record collection, finding their Tom Tom Club record that was in a box, among some other things. And it just really hitting me as something that felt really vibrant and bright and that I cared about. And then also, um, really being into Tim Burton films and getting into Danny Elfman. That was sort of really big for me, sort of as an early teenager. And then getting into Oingo Boingo. Definitely, I guess my my family and my upbringing it gave me like the space to discover stuff on my own because definitely we're talking early to mid nineties when I was listening to all of this kind of new wave, which was like ten years right, ten years old by that right. point. Grunge, it, it just didn't really work for me. I, I don't know. It was you weren't angsty enough. I don't know. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot about that because. I have a lot of respect for a lot of that stuff. And, you know, in retrospect too, a lot of it was pretty smart music and and cool. And and I I don't have anything against like Nirvana or Soundgarden or, or even like Pearl Jam, you know, but it just didn't, it just didn't really resonate with me. There was something about it that didn't excite me. And I don't know exactly what it was, you know, I don't, I don't know if it just didn't really do it for me, but definitely, you know, once I got back into Tom Tom club, sort of in early high school, then from there it was an easy leap to Talking Heads. I fell very quickly in love with Talking Heads. Uh, And then from there it was an easy trajectory to, to the Ramones. And, you know, and then from there, it's just sort of, is sort of finding those like
0: Zven diagrams of like, well, what do you like next? What do you like next? You know, did your tastes as a kid, which were out of step with the tastes of your contemporaries? Sure. Did that cause you any issues growing up? I, I'm well, what
1: caused me issues growing up, like really quite frankly, was just the fact that I was a little gay kid. Like that's what caused me issues. I don't think it was really my taste. In uh, elementary school, I was really bullied, and uh, it was really terrible, and I still really think that that was kind of the worst time of my life. Right. And I actually feel like I have spent a lot of mental and physical energy living out my idyllic childhood for literally the rest of my life. And I huh. I consider myself a mature person. I think I have my shit together. I think I'm empathetic. I think I'm a good friend. I they think- I know I'm, what I
0: know of you, I'd agree. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't
1: think that I'm I'm not like I don't think I'm like a weirdo Peter Pan guy. Although there are certain choices I've made that are distinctly not the choices that other adults make <laughs> when like they become what? like uh, I think a lot of people romantically decide to sort of settle in with someone and they end up growing with them. And that was never really something that I wanted to do. I wanted to find someone who really knocked me off my feet. Uh, Maybe that was sort of immature of me. You know, maybe I had too high expectations of, of my partners, my dating partners in the past. Although, that being said, I certainly have in the past. There have been a few people in the past who I have been quite excited about who have broken up with me, mainly because I think that, you know, I've really chosen to, you know, make time for my creative pursuits. I'm okay with sometimes not making as much money as other people Uh and living a little more frugally. Sometimes I'm a little more flush. It really depends on what I'm working on and projects and that kind of thing. And I think that for some people they maybe view that as unstable I've always chosen to live with roommates. Okay with that. I've always liked that. I currently am in a situation where I feel like it's a really intentional community living situation with three other roommates, and we just really, really love each other. Like not in like a sex way, but yeah, it would like be a, fine too. But totally. I'm sure. just I'm just clarifying because I don't want them listening and being like, "Is Louie insinuating the ball banging?" <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. We feel like living together at this point the way we're living together is like a very mature choice as opposed to it doesn't feel like an early to mid 20s choice it feels like a grown up choice where we've chosen to live this life where we're really happy and we support each other and and where we value friendship and we think friendship is important. Sure.
0: I mean there's a big difference between a chosen community type of situation then, uh, holy shit, I can't afford to live by myself, so I'm going to get two of my buddies from college to split this apartment with me. So, you were bullied, you think you were bullied, or you're certain you were bullied. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. horribly bullied. Well, the reasoning is what I'm getting at. Like, you're certain that you were bullied for being a little gay kid. Well, yeah, because I think I was different than the other kids, and I
1: think that I represented a, a different type of masculinity. You know, I was gentle, I was uh, very, very talkative. I was, you know, as I said before, I was quite bookish. I think I was really into a lot of like fantasy, like literature for kids. I read a lot of like the Oz books and I read some of the Narnia books and like some Madeline L'Engle and that kind of stuff. And I think that I was into a lot of that stuff mainly because I really needed some sort of fantasy escape, escape. you know. And um, and then I got super into comic books as a, like, around, like, fifth grade. So I was around, like, ten or so. And I'm still into comic books. Uh, I, I love superhero stuff um, and a lot of other types of comics as well. Archie comics when I was a little younger. Mad Magazine. That I kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, like... Archie I always really liked, and, and the musical is highly influenced by, by Archie Comics. Archie I always really liked because it was just this, like, wor- it was a world where, um, and Rivera Aguirre-Sacasa, who's, like, the um, head of, uh, he's, like, sort of the artistic head of Archie right now, um, he said this in an interview, but it, I agree with it, it really resonated with me, like, they can get into their fights, those characters, and they can have their disagreements, But at the end of the day, there's like sort of a calmness to all those stories where you really know that like everything's gonna be okay and that they like really love each other. And I wasn't really experiencing that with a lot of the kids at school. And I think I was really looking for that. I did have some really lovely friends in elementary school. It's not like I was like just completely alone and taking it from all sides. But for the most part, a lot of those kids, it was just really just sort of constant anger and torment and from the teachers as well, who didn't really know what to make of me and were pretty horrible to me. That bothers
0: me a little bit more.
1: 100%. It was not a safe environment. It wasn't a healthy educational environment. I, I went to a, a, a Jewish elementary school. My parents sent me there because they wanted me to be proud of my heritage. I think that that's a okay ...reason to send someone to a school like that. Sure. However, the school was certainly quite a bit more right-leaning... ...than uh, we were as a family. Um, And that meant sort of certain attitudes towards Israel... ...that make me very uncomfortable now... ...as a liberal person that wants everybody to be free and happy... But I think that trickled into the way that they treated all of us. Uh, You know, and and they just, they weren't into me. The people who ran that school weren't into me and to what I could offer. And that is such a shame. Uh, And then I went to a really lovely, very lucky, very fortunate, because it was somewhat expensive, private school that was sort of out in the country, in rural Alberta, because I grew up in Western Canada. So it was sort of nestled in like, you could see the mountains, and, and um, we wore uniforms, uh, which also totally—I totally have a thing for school uniforms. That
0: <laughs> I do really.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, that I'm gonna have until the day I die. Boys wow. and boys and ties and blazers. Yeah, give it to me. Went to that school. The school. It was a very small graduating class. It was a class of sixty-six, I think. Whew. I'm still in touch with a bunch of them. They're lovely, and that school. Despite being in the it was the mid the early to mid 90s that I was in junior high and high school, despite the fact that it was somewhat conservative because it was Western Canada at that time and attitudes towards you know towards queerness were really nascent, you know, at the time. Despite all that, they really keyed into the fact that they encouraged individuality there. and they certainly slipped up here and there. There was definitely some homophobic stuff said to me By some teachers from time to time You know, shitty th- shit that was said There was definitely a little bit of like casual racism here and there That being said, I do feel like the pedagogy of the school And the ethos of the school was such that it was like we act, We encourage your individuality We encourage you to find what you love Your pursuits, what you're going to enjoy in life We encourage independent thought open debate. That's
0: uh, a big one.
1: Absolutely. I think that's sort of what makes an educational environment positive and I'm really, really lucky. And although I feel like I'm still kind of like dealing with my early years in elementary school and sort of things crop up from time to time, I have a lot of imposter syndrome that I deal with. I feel like I've gotten better at dealing with it over the last few years. Imposter syndrome. I feel like I have a lot of inadequacy issues. I feel like that happen, it happens a lot when I'm dating. It especially happens a lot when I'm trying to hit on someone. Well, I'm explain, so bad at that, you know.
0: Explain the imposter syndrome. Like, what do you feel Well, you're acting as? Well, you know,
1: I when I was a kid, I wanted to be a movie director. I, I, like, I knew I wanted to be creative. I was like, well, I'll be a movie director. Like, you know, like, that was a job that I understood existed in the world. Sure. Um, there was a lot of... The kids, as a way to torment me, being like, you're never going to do that. You're never going to be a movie director. You're too stupid to be a movie director. Like, a lot of shit like that. Okay. You know, so I definitely still hear those voices in my head, and they've manifested in really specific ways, you know? It's interesting because, like, I've always had a lot of friends. I feel like I've always been a good friend to a lot of people, Um, even in elementary school. I don't have trouble making friends. You're a very
0: gregarious.
1: Yes, yes, yes. But definitely, like when it comes to romance, I think that I've had to traverse a lot of kind of like mental barriers to like connect with people intimately in that way. And I think a lot of it has to do with just like constant feelings of inadequacy, you know. And and then also uh, for those listeners at home because they can't see us, I'm five foot four. And they really teased me about how small I was. I was the smallest kid in my class. And I'm still just this small little man in in a world that isn't quite built for me, which is a little hard sometimes. Sometimes, you know, really gorgeous tall men specifically get on the subway. And I look at them and I go, are we even the same species? Oh, come on. Like, who the fuck, how the fuck is this, is that a human and I'm a human? Like, it's just... So insane to me, you know. I know, but it's just it's something goes through my head. Shapes and colors, of yeah. course. Yeah. yeah, of course. But it takes a lot of deprogramming, I think, to get to that stage. You can just be like, you know, yeah, everybody's beautiful, right? You know, and I'm as beautiful as the tall Aryan man, you know, and all that stuff.
0: I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I certainly have some of the same same issues. Mm-hmm. You know, what I try to wrap my head around is the fact that all of that is subjective. Taste is subjective, of course manliness is subjective totally all that stuff is subjective yeah. and just trying to like wash out the conditioning i guess yeah but it takes work yeah right? oh, absolutely. it's just an
1: everyday effort thing you absolutely. know to recognize those thoughts and be like okay i know where that's coming from and i also know that like i actually don't think that that isn't my core values you know, because you really have to recondition yourself, because you know your thoughts can very often go against you. I yes. think, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. really
0: hard. Yeah, absolutely right. Growing up queer yeah. in Canada, yeah, in was it rural Canada or no, 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 Calgary's
1: a pretty big city. Okay,
0: yeah, but like in Calgary proper, not like uh, yes, uh, yeah, okay. I lived in
1: like in like a neighborhood like close to downtown Calgary. Okay, so it was like suburban in a way that's almost similar to sort of the neighborhood that we're currently in, you know, we're currently in Ditmas Park. In Brooklyn, the houses may be a little smaller than here, but, like, rows of houses, cars, driveways, backyards. Okay. That's really where I grew up. So, like, in downtown Calgary, is isn't that big, but, like, a 40-minute walk to an urban center. So, like, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, like, a 30-minute walk to, like, rows of, like, more urban shops and, like, that kind of stuff.
0: I think a lot of times with kids, and you can let me know if you agree with me here or not, People conflate different and gay kids do, and some adults do as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that
1: um, definitely, kid, people conflate. Well, that's also because of sort of this definition of gay that um, we grew up with, and gay to me really connotes a very specific set of imagery. Yes, it's often um, white people. It's cisgendered men. It's sort of that dance music culture, for lack of a better term... And this is not me dissing on any of this. I don't want it to sound like no, a person of this. But you know it's right. it's men that are very interested in fitness and fashion, muscles. Yes. Fashion. Yep. Um men who have a really l- large amount of disposable income. I think that's important as well. Yep. So they're often living these fabulous lives because they're not supporting any children and they're both making lots of money because right. they're both like white guys doing like white collar professional jobs. Right. You know, something that I think we're having really good positive discussions about right now as a culture. And I think we are in a privileged place as like New Yorkers and like somewhat like upperly mobile New Yorkers to be having these conversations is that isn't the only form of queerness and the queerness takes all these different, there's all these shapes, sizes and flavors to queerness. And like, it's something that I think I describe myself almost more as queer these days than gay. Just, despite the fact that I'm not particularly interested in sleeping with um, cisgendered female women, like it's not really, I'm not into it, unfortunately. I'm not built for it. Sure. I wish I was. I wish I had that openness. But despite that, um, there's just a lot of baggage with, I think, the term gay that I'm like really in the process, I think, of shedding because that's never been me, all those things. I really attempt to do my own thing. And I think that's a a really good thing. And there's just so many more. I think there's so many more gathering places in the city and nights in the city now that are what I'm talking about, that are there's many more ethnicities represented. There's many more body types represented. There's many more gender representations. I think the beginning of a little more of like a, an open queer culture that's happening around that that does still feel like a culture and a community, but isn't thump-thump
0: music. Well, it's not as restrictive. Yeah, Um, yeah. uh, Similar to you, when I think gay, I think men way more often than women. Yeah, totally. Uh, It is definitely cisgender men. Yeah, yeah. Or at least men that identify as cisgender men and some might dress in drag occasionally, but there's no Mm -hmm. legitimate gender fluidity yes
1: it's a different thing that almost there's almost a binary with the drag as well right where it's like I'm you know Larry or whatever but then I have my drag persona who right. is you know Larissa Miss, Larissa exactly yeah. yeah Miss Larissa or whatever and it's a, sh- it's a show it's a performance right
0: no dissing drag queens at all no. it's just that it's a it's a different thing. Yeah. yeah. But also very dance music and muscly mm-hmm. and looks obsessed. In a yeah. certain way that you know, when I was growing up, there were no queer role models. There, were, there was nobody queer in the public eye that Certainly. was not dead of AIDS. That
1: is absolutely
0: true. Yeah. And the first openly queer man I remember, it was Elton John, who I have nothing in relation to at all. Uh, I love Elton John's music. Sure. But... There's no common ground, and Elton John came out when he was in his forties. Yeah,
1: he was like an older example of a
0: gay yeah. guy. So there wasn't a young, openly gay artist or public figure that I identified with until I was pretty much already out and in my mid to late twenties or even early thirties. Yeah, yeah, and, and do you find that
1: um, that now there's actually some younger queer? Icons. This spectrum that are, is huge. But but they're more identifiable, despite the fact that we're a little older. That it's yeah. like, oh yeah, this is more like me. Yeah. Like, even someone like a few years ago when Janelle Monae came on the yeah. scene, and certainly not because I would ever want to appropriate her as, like, a white, you know, a white queer dude, but I really liked how geeky she was, yeah. and that was really exciting to me. I was like, whoa, this is someone who clearly's read the same sci-fi that I have, And she's expressing it in such a different way, but there's something about it that is so unmistakably queer. And that was really exciting. And then there's also people who were able to represent some facet of the queer experience because they maybe were more privileged to represent that now it's sort of known that they're part of the queer world that we can identify with even though maybe they didn't sleep, it wasn't cisgendered men sleeping with men as much as you would think. You know, like someone like David Bowie, right? for example, who really hit a lot of the right stuff, but... Or Prince. Oh, very much so. You know, I personally like Prince more than David Bowie. Uh, I know you do. I know you yes. like, yes. <laughs> There's something about Prince's, what Prince did lyrically and musically that just, like, really resonates with me as to, like how I want to think about myself as a sexual queer guy. Right. You know, but like with Bowie, at the same time Bowie was, you know, starting out, there was Jabriath. Right. And Jabriath, for listeners that don't know, was a uh, openly gay glam singer who had a lot of aesthetic similarities to Bowie and musical as well. And when he came out, he like tanked. Yeah which is such a shame, and he ended up having a really short-lived career. And But there are certain people that sort of slipped through the radar and, and were able to represent a queerness. You know, the B-52s are a really good example. Right. They, they never formally came out, but yeah. we all knew, you know, we all figured it out. Um, or, uh, you know, I just learned really, uh, really recently, and he just passed away, but Pete Shelley, who was the lead singer and songwriter for the Buzzcocks, was, uh, bisexual. And, uh, a lot of the songs are about his experience sleeping with both men and women. And like, I've always really enjoyed the Buzzcocks and all that music resonates with me in a really different way now and in a way that I really appreciate. So I feel like a lot of my like late thirties has been me reconstructing my taste palette that I have always had a- as to be more about the narrative of like my queer experience which is also a lot of what my podcast, Kick the Jukebox, is about. So you should listen to it. Is it? Very much so. Yeah, it just keeps coming up. But yeah, we just get into that a lot. It just happens a lot when we get into it, when we talk about the albums that we really enjoy and that kind of
0: stuff. In terms of queerness and just in general, your relationship to masculinity and feeling like whatever a man is supposed to be, how has that evolved? You know, I think that my
1: 20s especially my early 20s were very lonely um and were
0: you in New York by this time I point? was okay. I
1: was and I think one of the main reasons why I was so lonely is because there was just no representation out in sort of mainstream gay the mainstream gay world for anyone that looked like me um meaning meaning everybody was like hairless yeah <laughs> Everybody I'm was, la- it's so true. It was true though, yeah. right? You remember yeah. everybody no everyone one had, is
0: shaved and trimmed. No one had body
1: hair. Nope. Uh, you know, ads for just gay bars and like gay weeklies, gay, you know, gay city news or, or HX or HX, yeah, yeah. I was trying to remember the name yeah. of it. HX. It would always be these like twinky, muscly. And it, I would look at the ads and go, well, I don't really know if I'm welcome there. Yeah,
0: twinkie, muscly, either blonde or Latin.
1: Yeah, blonde or Latin. Um, like, thank God, like, some Latin people. Yeah. Like, at least, you know, well, like, you God, know, Americans. I mean,
0: yeah. I, I, I... That might be the Madonna effect. Who the hell knows? I think it probably was. <laughs> yeah, and like, good for her. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but,
1: like, not a lot of African Americans. Right, and also,
0: to be clear, white... White, almost white, passing Latins. Like if you were Dominican oh, yeah, or yeah. dark Puerto Rican, yeah, it, it didn't work. Yeah, get yeah. out of here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and you know, and I'm a
1: very um, dark featured Jew. I've been told I'm very Mediterranean features. I'm I'm my lineage is Eastern European. Okay, I'm very hairy. Uh, you know, um, I sometimes I call myself the hairiest man, <laughs> in, the hairiest man in New York. That is not true. <laughs> but you are very hairy. Yes, totally. Um so I just didn't see anybody rep- representative and then going out and meeting men, a lot of men just didn't know what to make of me because they weren't exposed to people looking like me being sexy. Right. So and I, you know what I had I dated a little bit here and there in my 20s, but certainly not as much as I ended up in my 30s. But I feel like early, or sort of late 2000s, into the 20-teens, there was a mindset shift. All of a sudden, we started seeing hairy men being sexy. The beards There's, came back. The beards came back. There was something, metrosexuals, you know, I well, think they, was sort of part of it, too. Yeah, there was a, yeah The straight community being like, yeah, you can be a... Uh, groomed masculine. That was an interesting thing that happened. And then also just in porn, which is so much of how we sort of see ourselves, I think, in the gay community, there's started being more like bear porn and that kind of stuff, just being more readily accessible to people. I think... And I think it changed the game quite a lot in the way we see ourselves. So here's
0: an interesting theory I'm going to posit to you. Do you think that the fact that... Porn went from being this mass-produced thing to being more uh, mom and pop kind of anybody or with amateur, cam, yeah, absolutely. So you started seeing more real, quote unquote, I mean, uh, air quotes, more yeah, yeah. real-looking gentlemen. I
1: think so. Yeah, very much so. A lot of people were expressing themselves sexually, and I think just seeing different types of people express themselves sexually recorded. Uh, is very liberating, it's it's very exciting, and I think it's very democratizing. And and now when I go out, when people hit on me, very often it's, oh, you know, I love your, uh, you know, I love how hairy you are, I love your hairy arms, I love your, and, and I have to, like, take a moment to be <laughs> like, thank you, and, like, listen to the compliment, internalize it, because I'm so not used to it. And part of me is like, where the fuck were you when I was 21? This would have been so helpful for me. And then just in the last few years, I grew these mutton chops. And it's like really interesting because it's like, it's, I think, really the only thing about them, I like them because they, I have a bit of a round face and they kind of make my face a little more angular, which I like. It gives me, makes me a little more chiseled, I think. But I think that it's literally just making a choice about my facial hair made me more attractive to people. Isn't that weird? Because you don't
0: look like everybody else does. You look like
1: you. I think so, I mean, the yeah.
0: Chops definitely look like they stepped off of a Grand Funk Railroad LP. Thank
1: you so much, because that's literally what I was going for. <laughs> I was going for, I want to look like a fuzzy musician from the 70s. <laughs> that's literally... When I started growing them specifically, I was like, I want to look like I'm in the band. Oh, man. Specifically.
0: It's like, I want to have
1: that look for a while. And they just kind of stuck. But that's
0: great, because it's unique, and it's not cookie cutter. Yeah. And you don't look like you rolled off the, uh, what do they call them, the clone assembly line. Totally. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So Um, it's interesting, yeah. I don't know if you grew up with these perceived notions of what manliness was, and how that might have related to your own sexuality? Certainly, you, because you you said that your parents were fairly liberal. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what the if your parents' relationship broke down into traditional gender roles. They didn't
1: totally. Which I've never been asked that question before, and I haven't thought about it a lot. My my mom uh, was the head buyer and manager of. Uh, a clo- uh, women's casual clothing store that they owned together. And then my dad was the, basically the financial manager for the store. He did all the books okay. and, you know, did all the payroll and that kind of stuff. And, but my mom was the buyer for the store. Um, and then my dad also did a lot of sort of like, a, there was a certain point where we owned two stores So he would do a lot of the transfers between the stores and he would also do a lot of the dropping stuff off at like the seamstress, like that kind of work as well. But he was certainly not a salesperson and he was not involved with the clothes because it wasn't that it's not men can certainly do that. But it really is for that those sorts of clothes, clothes that women are wearing casually, it's really good to have a woman's eye on them. Like how do they (laughs) fit? How do they fit properly? That kind of stuff. Like, but they both came from sort from the clothing industry. They both came from working in retail stores and that kind of stuff. But it meant that my dad did the bulk of raising me as a kid, the bulk of picking me up and driving me to, to and from lessons. I would go to a dance class on uh, a funk dance, funk dancing. There funk are dan- funk dance classes? There was a funk, well, in the early 90s there sure was. Um, <laughs> uh, funk dancing, which was really hip-hop, it's just that it's not what they called it right. in West in Calgary, you know.
0: So were you dancing to like MC Hammer or Yes.
1: Whatever? We were dancing to Too Legit to Quit, specifically, and Adam's I, group. I called that one. Yeah, and we did, we learned how to do the RoboCop and the Roger <laughs> Rabbit. I know, right? Isn't that crazy? Oh, this is great. I know, totally. I was like 10, 11. Yeah, so so the gender roles um, definitely didn't break down in a traditional way. And I do think that was ultimately really helpful for me, although I've never really thought about it before. Right. And there were certainly times growing up where I think that m- both my mom and my dad struggled with their own gender Roles because they they had, they were making them up a little bit as they went along with their like just with the way that they ran their lives and there were certain times where maybe both of them felt a little inadequate but that's their podcast you right know, yes. that's their interview yes indeed. but there just were some times where like maybe dad felt like it would be good for him to be a little more in charge of certain things or maybe my mom felt like she maybe wanted to. Spend a little more time just like raising me. yeah, and it also meant that my dad had to be the bad guy. And this is a bit of a reverse of a gender role as well. My dad had to be the disciplinarian really with me, and my mom could really be the good, the good, the good guy. Huh. The yeah. mom for me was mom for me was like, you know, oh, we go to the movies, we watch TV together. We had sort we just had like this wonderful cultural, you know connection, which we still do. You know, my mom and I were texting today about Harley Quinn birds of prey, you know, <laughs> which she just saw that she wants to talk to me all about. You know, which is fucking lovely. That's awesome. Anyway, so that is sort of that was sort of their gender roles and I do think it ended up being pretty helpful that I could engage in things that were traditionally feminine and engage in things that were traditionally masculine and it didn't really matter to them either way.
0: So when yeah. you came out, mm-hmm. were they pretty chill or were they they had a bad
1: reaction for the first day. They really had a major freakout. They cried. They got really
0: angry. And I, actually, before, I have yes. to ask, because I did another show with a spectacular coming out story. Uh-huh. What would, How did your parents find out? That How did my parents find out? Yeah. Um,
1: I... Started coming out to some of my high school friends who were very supportive, which for the mid nineties, Calgary, very impressive. Yeah, that's that. And it shows that the school was raising good kids. I think very supportive and they, um, you know, I started coming out when I was 16. I started, I remember sort of at a party telling some friends we were all drunk I think I came out as bisexual first,
0: you know, soften the load, you is know. That, I have to ask. That's really common, isn't it? Like, maybe just for our age. I think for our
1: age it is. I think a little less now. Right. yeah. Yeah. Now, when, like, younger people tell me they're bisexual, I believe them. Yes. I'm not like, oh, you're secretly gay. Right. I'm just like, oh, yeah, you, yeah, you, that's, you're telling,
0: what you're telling me is your truth. You take it at face value. Absolutely. <coughs> Whereas in younger yeah. days, or in, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, if someone told me they were bisexual in my head, I'd be like, yeah, no, you're just gay in training. Totally. Which is
1: definitely, we've learned, like, a total form of biphobia. Yeah. So I certainly try not to do that anymore yes. I mean, that, yes. in my life. Yeah. I
0: understand the spectrum a lot more in 20 years totally. than I did in 1998 or whatever. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Well, and hopefully you would. Hopefully <laughs> we've all grown. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, so I started coming out, and then and then I went to a really wonderful arts summer camp where I also really felt very, very, very free to express myself, and it was in uh, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and met a whole bunch of East Coast kids that were, a lot of them were city kids, and they were super, super open and liberal and cool and geeky and somewhat queer and that kind of stuff, so that really helped. So then when I, like, had just turned 17... Um I it was it was actually right around this time. It was like February what day is it today? It's the fifteenth of February. I think it was actually like maybe February seventeenth. Wow. Or so or or it was just a few days after Valentine's Day. Yeah. yeah, and it was in ninety-eight. I was at a party and I was feeling really depressed and my friends were like, What's wrong? And I was like, I don't really I'm not really proud of who I am. I don't like that I'm keeping this secret from my parents. And their response was, well, we love you, and you're wonderful. That's so See, amazing. So you should be proud of who you are. And I was like, you're right. After that party, you know, I went home, and I woke up really early the next day because I was totally freaked out, so I didn't get a lot of sleep. And I wandered downstairs to my den and put on my videotape of Rocky Horror Picture Show and watched it to galvanize myself, because at the time, that was a real queer touchstone for me, Yes, And then um, my parents came down and were like, why are you up so early? Are you okay? What's wrong? And I told them. And my dad immediately started crying. Uh, And he's a real feelings on his sleeve. So he cried my mom's immediate reaction was, this is a really terrible time to tell us this. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly.
0: I'm gonna ruin my parents' lives right
1: now. Yeah, yeah, It was. Yeah, she made it about her, which is, was not great, and then from there, you know, they went through a lot of what... Um, they went through a lot of what a lot of families go through over the course of even years, and it was compressed into a day which made it—it it made it for me highly traumatic, and it's something that I'm still dealing with. And they know that. My parents know that. It doesn't—it's not really about my relationship with them. It's about my relationship with the world and with like people who I trust and rebuilding that. They've done everything that they can. They're in great shape. They're lovely. They're, this isn't any dissing against them at all. But it's just—it's just sort of about how I perceive the world and how much that sort of pulled the rug out from under me. But then it also made that day very highly productive because we got through a lot of the bullshit very quickly. Right.
0: It was like shock, denial, trauma, anger, acceptance.
1: Yeah, and it was all like within the course in of hour. like four <laughs> hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From there, we uh, we went to see a family therapist who was excellent. I I don't know if it was my suggestion or maybe theirs, but like we immediately figured it out. I told my mom to look up P Flag wow. in the phone book. So we looked up P FLAG and we found some recommendations of a therapist
0: through P FLAG. Um which for those listening, P FLAG is uh, parents and friends of lesbians and gays. Yes, yeah, it's
1: an old organization who've done really good work. Indeed. Really good work. Um so lucky to, that they had a Calgary chapter. And then we only saw that therapist just a few times uh, because um it was already pretty like uh, we were already moving on to other concerns. Because what they realized is that, really, what they were mainly worried about was that they realized that, like, me being gay meant that there was a lot about my life that would be, like, they felt really unsafe or unpredictable, and they just wanted me to be safe. And that being a priority is, like, a totally okay priority for parents to have. It's just, you need to go about it in healthy ways, Yeah, I obviously. Feel like a lot of yeah.
0: parents... Have the attitude, and again, maybe this is a generational thing, I don't know what parents who are parents of queer children now would say, but, like, oh, we just want you to be happy and live a full life, which is great. Yeah. If I was a parent, I would want my child to have a happy and full life, too. 100%, of course. But, you know, being queer and living a happy and full life are not mutually exclusive. And they even back then they were not mutually exclusive. One
1: hundred percent. However, it was sort of the stereotype that queer people were unhappy. Yes. You know, and queer people wrong couldn't you. find their own happiness. Right. Yeah.
0: And also, I think, at least speaking on on, on my end uh, as a queer man, there was there was a danger of early death and and yes. sort of all that other
1: stuff. Danger of early death and and also danger of a lot of physical violence. Yes. You know, which is still something we have to yes, watch out for. Still exists. Which is really fucking scary, yeah. and something else that frightens me all the time. And then, and then, in terms of like the rest of my coming out story, I actually did another very good podcast about that's pretty much only about my coming out. Okay. That's called "Thank You for Coming Out." <laughs> that is really. I
0: see what they did there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah it's hosted by my friend Dubs Weinblatt, and it's um. Distributed by Gay City News. Okay, so I recommend like uh, checking that out. I
0: checked it out. Yeah, I'd like, love to be on that.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll hook you guys up yeah. because yeah, Dubs is amazing. And uh, but but I don't wanna uh I don't wanna talk too much more about coming out yes. on this podcast yes. because uh, mainly I just don't want to repeat myself on two sure. podcasts. Yeah, yeah.
0: So where do you sit with masculinity masculinity now as a man in your thirties, blue hair? Yeah. And mutton chops. And mutton chops. And the Grand Funk. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, I have this like Butch fantasy of like going out to Woodstock and recording an album and like shooting, you know, like shooting a gun, you know, like it's the good. band used to do. You know, it's the sexy, sexy band who when I was a kid, so straight. They're yeah. so
0: straight. The band. <laughs> when I was a kid, like a lot of those '70s rock album covers were sure. kind of a turn on. Of there were dudes that did not wear shirts. Oh, yeah. Or wore shirts that were, like, open, pretty much open. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they're all kind of, like, swarthy and, and mustachioed and, mm-hmm. you know, like, that kind of thing.
1: And also, you know, the rock world was so sexually permissive compared to real life. Yeah. So it led to, I mean, a lot, as we talked about before, a lot of, like, Subtle queerness or subtle different versions of masculinity. Even guys that wouldn't look at themselves as not being masculine were ima- were somewhat feminine or somewhat straddled that line. You well, know? I mean,
0: you look at the whole hair metal thing, and yeah, it was guys and with names like Janie, and mm-hmm. you know, that wore a shit ton of makeup and long hair, and were wearing lingerie, basically. Yeah. Um, But they were also, like, super, Yeah, like like, Twisted Sister,
1: I feel. But, like, Twisted Sister, like, dudes love Twisted Sister. But Twisted Sister's, like, roots are, like, glam rock. Glam rock, right. You know, yeah. Um, You know, a lot of that stuff, they were all, like, influenced by, like, mainly by, like, bands like Slade, you know, that kind of stuff. And that was all, like, very intentionally sort of, Masculine, feminine, straddling the line right. fey, experiment in experimentational.
0: The British so, had a much better handle on this thing. They did. The they
1: they really did. Although like less mainstream, but like shout out to like people like New York dolls. Right. They had a really good handle on it, right. you know, or even Velvet Underground sort of were like a lot more like sort of a lot more fay in the way they represented themselves. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you asked me, how do I look at masculinity Today? now? Yes. I, it's hard it's it's uh, I still think I'm dealing with a lot of deprogramming myself I definitely am attracted to very traditional versions of masculinity and I'm trying to be very open to be attracted to people who m- are much more straddle the line between masculine and feminine or people that don't represent as 100% masculine like I'm really trying um yeah you know I still do really like. A good butchness in what I'm attracted <laughs> to. I, you know, I love like dumb boy stuff. I love like dopey video game guys and like all that shit. You know, which I feel is very masculine. No, do you masculine? I do think so. Because I, do, I that, think
0: dopey video all, games, video, dopey yeah. video game guys. I think more nerdy.
1: Well, nerd, nerd, dumb. Uh, really, up until just a few years ago, was really very much the world of the straight man. Very much so. And then it's sort of, once again, because of the internet, it came out that there were all these different types of fans. And now there's really great organizations like Geeks Out who run FlameCon every year that I've been involved with for the last few years who are really trying to challenge that notion of what is a nerd, what is a geek. Uh, and definitely the white straight nerds are like having a real, uh, a real hissy fit moment because they're they're realizing that they that they don't have this monopoly, monopoly. on that culture yeah, yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Gamergate and, you know, what happened with, like, Star Wars The Last Jedi, like, all that stuff. That's definitely representative of, like, how much of an encrosion and how much of a threat all of us are to them. Right. But, you know, those boys that still live in their mom's basement and go to 711 every day and play video games. I find that highly attractive. And it really? yeah, totally. And it's definitely something that I'm trying to detrain myself. It's like, "Well, why? Why do I find that attractive?" Or these all these music boys, all these boys that um the flannel the flannel guys, you know, who can, you know, talk to you for 2 hours about Brian Wilson. Like I find that highly attractive as well. And I feel like a lot of those guys really exist within the realm of being, like, very heterosexual. Give me an example. Uh, 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 you know, all those, like, indie kids at shows. You know what I'm talking about. See, I feel
0: like indie kids, it's interesting, because when I think think nerd, Mm -hmm. I think, like, tech nerd. Sure. Which, much less traditionally masculine to me. Like, masculine, to me, always conjures up bro... Yes, definitely.
1: Well, yeah, there's definitely a gentleness to a lot of those guys and a soft-spokenness or an openness to listening. For a lot of them, not a lot. You know, a lot of music fans are fucking insufferable, you know, so I would say that they (laughs) listen. As a former
0: music critic, I uh, understand. Of course, right? I've been insufferable myself. Well,
1: yeah, but, like, you're open to a lot of different types of music and True. genres. Like, you're not rockist. No. You know, like, I'm talking a lot, like, about a lot of those people. Yes. Who are like, you know, it's not real music or, you know, like, that kind of thing. Um,
0: Why is Whitney Houston in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? She's not rock and roll. Yes,
1: those people. Why is Whitney Houston? Yeah, exactly. Why are we nominating these rap acts? Yes. You know, like, that shit. Rap isn't
0: music. Rap is crap.
1: Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of um dudes, I feel like this is a... Uh, This does kind of tie into masculinity. And this is, you know, because I'm looking at gay or queer people on dating apps, but a lot of guys, and this is an immediate turnoff for me, I like all music except rap and country. Country. And I'm like, oh, cool. That means that you are racist racist. and classist. Very cool. Love it. Awesome. Very cool. That means you don't like poor white people, and it means, or like middle class white people,
0: and it means you don't like black people. People of color. Yeah. Yeah. The end. See, you're thinking... Sort of like the 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 Robert Crissow kind of archetype. Uh-huh, I'm thinking uh-huh. like Bonnie Vere, who's not masculine in like a traditional sense, even though he's got like the beard and the flannel and all that stuff. Yeah, but I consider that new.
1: You right. know, Bonnie Vere has only been around since, and I like Bonnie Vere. Yeah. like I think Bonnie Vere is cool. I mean, I that, you know, Bonnie Vere, that's like late 2000s, 2000, 2005, right. 2006. Right. You know, these are sort of new conceptions of what it means to be a man or, or almost like a remix of Bonnie Vare. I also really like Fleet Foxes. Yeah, like Fleet Foxes are, are a really cool band. Um, I don't like Munford and Sons, but I group them in with this that's as fine. well. I feel like that's all um, stuff. I feel like that all stems from like stuff that I like, like the band, right. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, those types of guys. Right. But I do feel like, all those guys were a little more like aggressively masculine. Like they weren't afraid to sing about their feelings, but like they wouldn't be as gentle as those guys are. Right. But those guys are all for my, to my knowledge, they pretty much exclusively sleep with women. All I mean, we don't. it's all pretty, but they all seem pretty straight to me, but it, it shows that there is a bit of a change in the way that masculinity and, and straightness is being thought of in mainstream culture. And I think that's a really positive thing, right? That's, feels new that feels very like let's recontextualize culture you know
0: you know my sense of masculinity is i guess maybe hyper masculine sure which i think kind of comes from being black Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. growing up in sort of black and caribbean and latin culture totally and growing up in hip-hop so when i see sort of like indie kids out now i'm actually intrigued by how non-straight totally non-straight but non-queer like how i i had this joke with my therapist that i'm only attracted to people whose sexual orientation i can't figure out
1: i think that that is so i think that really speaks to me i've been a friend of mine asked me the other day like what's your type and definitely like part of my type is like sort of like a more like Burly kind of like bearish man, sure. you know, uh, which is like well represented in the gay community. So it's like easy for me to find them. Uh, but then definitely another type is i describe as. Ninety percent sleeps with women, ten percent sleeps with men. Right. I think that that's totally a type that I have. Huh. So and it's I not think even it's like... this—it's this open fluidity that I right. find really attractive and right. exciting, and also less trauma and baggage than the gay community. Yeah, for real. Which you have to be respectful. of Trauma and baggage is something I'm trying to figure out how to do. Yeah. Like be I, respectful of people's trauma. Trauma. And, is, I mean, the yeah.
0: trauma and baggage is certainly acquired. You know, and I could go on for a long time talking about issues that I have with the gay community. Um, but I think a lot of the trauma and baggage that is acquired is then projected mm-hmm. out. It sort of takes root in, you know, racism and sexism mm-hmm. and...
1: Uh, we are their palette. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, sorry, we are the, we are their canvas right. for them to paint their trauma pictures. Right. And I certainly have been guilty of that in the past and have been the born the brunt of that in the past as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah, we've veered we've jumped around a little bit so it's been great yeah what creatively is like the ultimate for you where do you see like between the the theater and the podcasts the djing you know all the other things you do just as a creative person do you think that you'll get to a point where you're gonna be like okay i've hit it like this is my apex i'm doing the thing that i want to do and i'm doing it well and mm-hmm. this is the pinnacle Writing the
1: musical really was a really helpful thing because A, people liked it. B, it was so representative of who I am as a person. S- uh, you know, and C, I was encouraged to do it more. I think that maybe I'm a guy that will be known the most for writing musicals. I hope to be. I hope to write a few more. I have a few more ideas for other shows. I definitely want more to be done with Joey and Ron, which is a wonderful sugar-sweet 60s bubblegum rock musical, highly uh, influenced by Archie Comics, The Monkees, and the 19th Fruit Gum Company, and uh, very much appeals to uh, women in their 40s and teenagers who end uh, in their 50s and 60s. Uh, and that's a huge demographic of people who buy theater tickets. I, yes. So you should totally produce this show if you have any money lying around, you should totally produce my show. But um so I see myself something I really like about it is there was something something very substantial about it and like it felt like very permanent because I come from this improv and sketch background where there's so much non-permanence in my work. So what I really am hoping for myself, like let's say that like the 10-year plan is that my main focus will be writing, you know, theater, film, television, definitely musicals, which I think I'm good at, and I really, like, love the form. And then augmenting that... With other stuff that I find really um, rewarding, that like helps tickle my brain another way to keep me like an active, creative person. So like DJing on the side because right. I really feel like I I feel like I'm like an artistically expressive DJ. Continuing to do my podcasting where I parse through my musical taste with my pal. I think that's really helpful for me. Um, the Riverdale podcast is interestingly helpful just to have sort of that tap into something that's so fucking mainstream right now um you know do it with a partner who also is just so smart and fun to chat with um my my podcast partner Kate Vatter who's really really smart and just a really lovely person so uh that's sort of how I want to see myself is like primarily I'm writing uh and producing and and putting these shows up You know, every once in a while, on the side, I'm recording a podcast to keep myself active in that way. I'm doing improv shows. I'm doing that kind of stuff just because it's all like kind of part of my practice. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. So yeah, that's how I see myself, and that's sort of. But I don't think I'm ever going to stop doing everything and only do one thing. I just don't think it's in my nature. It's not really how I'm built. I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. Add. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, (laughs) get
0: it. I want to thank Louis for being so open and honest during our conversation. I think his story is a great testament to how creativity can keep you going and why it's great to never lose that part of you. I think he's also got a great story about measuring success by your own standards instead of society's. Louis has got a lot going on. Uh you can find the Kick the Jukebox Podcast and the Riverdale XOXO podcast on whichever platform you enjoy podcasts. And you can go to joeyronmusical dot com, that is joeyronmusical dot com to find out more about Joey and Ron, the sugar sweet bubblegum musical. I feel like you need to say that with like a big smile on your face. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make sure I got the full name correct. Louis is Louis4711 on Instagram, and you can also find out more about him by going to LouisProman.com. Whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or on Podbean, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss another episode, and please use the hashtag DetoxPod if you're discussing the show online. Leave a review anywhere that you can and tell your friends about detoxicity if you think that they'll enjoy it. If you have any questions about the show or you'd like to be a guest shooting an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. You can also like this podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash detoxpod, or you can follow me or slide into my DMs on Instagram at it's Mike Joseph. I'm Mike Joseph, and I thank you for listening. Catch y'all next time. Be safe, be healthy, be good to each other. Peace.